Are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change. From business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations, I'm your host, Alyssa Cox. And here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. My guest today is Maura Ahrens Mealy, a global speaker, best-selling author, and strategic communications consultant. She's also the host of The Anxious Achiever, a podcast on a mission to reframe how we think about anxiety and mental health at work. Change can drive a lot of anxiety. And this season, we're really focused on how language plays a role in the way we operate change and the way we feel about change. So let's start with a really basic question. When it comes to communicating change and marketing change, how do you know if you've been effective? Well, this is this is the thing that I tell my clients, right? So I am an ex-political consultant. And um, for two decades, basically helped clients create change campaigns, behavior change, social change, legislative change, electoral change. And I think what we do wrong when we create campaigns for change is we, we get the measurement sticks wrong. We expect either that change is just going to happen overnight, right? Or that change can be measured in a discrete number of actions. And the truth is, is that especially in our digital world, change happens very slowly and then it happens quickly. And that's why language is so important because you can literally hear change in language. And so I'm really obsessed with a kind of behavior change theory called narrative change, which is how do we change our public and our private narratives so that overall social change happens. And I love this this idea of narrative change and not just our public narrative, but our personal narrative. Right. Because the way we talk to ourselves has a big impact on the way we approach what is changing around us and how we're able to absorb the change around us, react to the change around us, actually amplify our impact through the change around us. So talk to me a little bit more about, about personal narratives. Um, so I have long been a super fan of Marshall Gantz at Harvard, who um, if, if listeners don't know Marshall Gantz's work, G-A-N-Z, I, I just, just go like, give yourself a couple hours and like dive in. There's so much stuff online, but Marshall Gantz is um, the nat the master of public narrative teaching and organizing in this country. And he most famously helped president Obama during his first election. And Marshall's basic theory is that narrative change happens in three steps. It starts with the story of me, <laughs> my story, and then I hear the story of you, and then we come together to build a story of us. And that's where your personal narrative is really so important. The place where this ties in is in those of us who love psychology and who really pay attention to not just our personal narratives, but our inner voices, our inner critics, <laughs> all the voices that drive us to tell the stories that we tell ourselves, right? And it was only recently that I realized, and, and again, I have no, I don't have data to support this, but you know, those of us who have like really negative inner critic voices, 
are really not doing ourselves a favor if we want to drive change. Because how can we drive narrative change out of us if our inner critic is always yelling at us? But a lot of times that inner critic, because like I hear, I hear this inner critic as well, right? I hear it and I don't think this is negative self-talk and this is poisonous behavior, right? Yeah. This is something that I need to work on. I hear it as this is actually a realistic view of what's going on in the world. This is actually just being responsible. And so how do we both in our narratives for ourselves and also as we're thinking about communicating, because others have, the people we're communicating with have sort of negative internal talk tracks as well, self-critical internal talk tracks. How do we position ourselves and the language that we use to, to break through some of that negative talk track to help others work through change in a, in a productive way? How do we, knowing that that's some of our audience, how do we go and approach delivering messages, knowing that that's where people's heads are? Right. I mean, so, so this is, this is my approach <laughs> and it's funny. I actually used to get in fights. Um, I don't, I don't do, I don't do a ton of consulting with clients um, on their narrative change anymore, but I had a client for many years and um, we were working on a big public narrative change project around teenagerhood, American teenagerhood. So this is a great example. In this country, we have a very negative narrative around teenagers. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Euphoria, they're out of control, they hate their parents, they're silent, they grunt, their prefrontal cortexes are so undeveloped, they're all gonna smash into walls, all these narratives, right? And the goal of this research center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was to really change the public narrative around parenting in order that individual parents and their teens could have better relationships. So there was public narrative at change, play at change, like how do we change movie scripts and ABC News specials and all that, but also how do I change my opinion of what it's like to have a teenager? How do I get excited when you have a three-year-old and they're an absolute nightmare? No one is like, oh, they're horrible people. They're like, yeah, it's a toddler. And how do we get that, that flexible growth mindset around teenagers? And so I believe it's by getting the big ugh, out there. Like you and I at the beginning, we were talking about parenting. We're like, oh my God, kids are really, really difficult. Another consulting group on the project called Frameworks, which is a really famous um, narrative framing organization, said, no, you never put the negative first because you anchor people's minds. So if I were to write an article and the headline was, oh, my teenager's driving me crazy, they said, that reinforces people's negative bias. I disagree with that. And I actually, in my work with the anxious achiever, really try to get the ugh factor out there because I believe that's how we build the story of us, like you and I are doing today. I can share my deep, dark, negative thoughts. You can share your deep, dark, negative thoughts. And we can realize we're not alone. We're human. We're in this slog together. And we can do something about it. I believe, actually, that it is by sharing our vulnerable underbellies and those negative narratives that we break the bad habits and we actually drive change. There's a, a podcast that I listened to at some point and I couldn't, I can't reference it, but it was talking about sort of marital health. And the comment that was made was the fights that you have with your spouse or with your partner or with your friends are very rarely about the thing you're fighting about. Right. They're about everything else that's come before. So maybe we're fighting about you know, the way you put the dishes in the dishwasher. But what we're 
actually fighting about is this slight that I've held onto and cultivated, right? <laughs> From six months ago, where you said something to me that I took personally, and I've been gathering evidence in that case for six months, and now it's coming to a head over the dishwasher, which actually doesn't matter, right? right? And I feel like when we approach change, there's so much of that built up that when people resist change, perhaps they're responding to sort of anxiety about a change in, a change in technology, perhaps they're responding to the thing that they tell you they're upset about mm -hmm. or they're anxious about, but oftentimes, it's these, these additional layers of, of rationale, these additional layers of, of narrative that if we don't make an effort to bring those forward and create a safe place to bring those forward, they continue to act on our relationships. They continue to act on our interactions in a very negative way that we have a really hard time addressing. Well, but even worse, we're bringing the slight from six months ago, but we're probably bringing the slight from our childhood that this is this is pulling up for us. I mean, that's why I believe therapy is so amazing. And I think that we should all have therapy at work too, because of course we bring these behaviors to work. You know, the, the added layer, just to add a whole other layer, right, is, is, is that this stuff becomes habitual for us. And I think what we don't realize is a lot of the, the negative self-talk, the worry, the fights with our partners, their habits, and we've just got to work on breaking those habits first also to drive change. And recognizing those habits. Yeah. So I know I'm in this sort of death spiral of conflict when I start using words like always and never, when I use these absolutist across all time terms, like this thing never works. Is that right? <laughs> I've now taken a couple of beads of evidence and turn extrapolated them into this global theory that I'm now using and applying to all of my potentially tangential situations. That's not healthy. No. And that for me, so for me, when I think about language, that's a language trigger for me that I started down the wrong path and I need to, to sort of get back on the straight and narrow, get back to a place where I can be open to change and I can recognize my own internal barriers to openness to change. Are there other, do you have, do you recognize language triggers for yourself or are there things that you recognize in the language that you use? First of all, I mean, I think you've started on the path to change by recognizing, right? I mean, any, any good therapist would say, wow, that's great. You've been able to distance enough from the behavior to actually hear your words and recognize where you're at. Sometimes. <laughs> no one's perfect. Still. <laughs> Still, gold star for you. So, so what you're in when you do that is you're in a thought trap, right? You're in a thought trap. Your, your mind is habitually going to a place where you're using shoulds and nevers and all the words because you're having sort of black and white thinking. I, I, that's why, I mean, I'm obsessed with the idea of thought traps and, and, and a lot of them, we all have our favorites, right? So yours might be so, sort of going into a black and white place of like should or never, or I always do the dishes. You never do the dishes, Right. My particular language thought trap is catastrophizing. For example, this is a personal example, but I was doing cash flow planning with my husband um, because we're both going through like some career transition stuff and I'm very anxious about it and the economy is very scary and it's all this like very uncertain anxiety in my head about it. And so into the cash flow planning meeting with my husband, I bring 
we're going to run out of money. Like a big, like catastrophic, we're never going to be able to retire. And so how do you get from a place where you read a headline in the newspaper, you're worried about your career, things feel scary, you see a like recession, the link, I go on LinkedIn, I see like layoffs at Salesforce, recession fears, IMF doubles down on bad numbers. And so then I'm carrying all of that in my head and it comes out in that meeting in, we're never going to be able to retire. My husband feels attacked. I feel anxious. Nothing good happens. <laughs> So that's my own personal favorite thought trap that I go to. Yeah. And it's so, it's so hard when you come in presupposing a, particularly a negative outcome, right? I've certainly seen it in conversations like you're describing, but I've also seen it like in the workplace when we're talking about organizational change. If I come in with, we're going to make this org change. If the first place that my audience goes is I'm going to get fired or She's saying this, but we're never actually going to do it. Or this is going to be a disaster. It's going to suck all my time. And I'm still going to use my old technology solutions anyway. Like It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's why, I mean, I think that's why also it, it's all about communication. Because for example, you know, you take the, the I'm going to get fired example. You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm the leader of an organization and I say there's a mandatory all company meeting tomorrow at 9 a.m., right? And I don't give context and... I haven't communicated to my managers how to answer questions about it. And I've just left a huge vacuum. Well, what's going to happen? All of us are going to worry because we have 12 hours of productive time between now and 9 a.m., 15 hours with which to be anxious. And so we're going to put all of that into worry. All of our productive energy is going to go into worrying. We're going to create scenarios. People like me are going to assume that I'm getting fired. People like you are going to say, I should never have flubbed that presentation. I always do this. I'm definitely going to be the first one with layoffs. We're all going to tell stories in our head, go back to the habits that we have of worrying and going to our favorite thought traps. And, and a lot of that could have just been avoided by better communication. And so when we think about our communications and we think about the language that we use and the messages we choose to send, how do we start as, as message senders, as communicators, how do we start to get ahead of that? How do we start to head that off at the pass, if you will, and help people come with either an open mindset, if that's what's required, or the correct orientation to what they're about to hear? Right. I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? And there's legal issues and there's all kinds of issues involved. But but if you are planning layoffs, right, you all of a sudden are doing something to people that is one of the hardest things for humans to do. You are basically giving them a block of negative uncertainty. And that's hard for us. We don't like sitting in uncertainty that feels scary. That brings up issues for every single human, right? There's no human alive who says you're going to get some big news at 9am the next day. And it's like, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> if, if it feels, you know, if your company is skyrocketing and it's heading towards an IPO, but in this environment. And so, and so how do you communicate that? Well, you can't change the fact that there might have to be layoffs. The news might be bad. So you have to train your managers at the team level to be able to communicate and create holding environments. And it's not just layoffs because sometimes it's about reorganization that results in fundamental changes in people's jobs. We're pulling out or we're deploying a new system 
that's going to automate a big part of your job. And we're committed to maintaining your employment here, but your job is going to change. I mean, people right. have a ton of their personal identity wrapped up in what they do. And in many cases, how they do it. And when your identity is wrapped up there, that, that idea of a transition sort of threatens very much who you understand yourself to be within this organization, your equity within this organization. It's like losing a job because you, you're losing something in that change. And it drives a ton of anxiety for people. I, you know, I worked a lot in startups and have worked with a lot of people in startups. And there's a phenomenon that happens when you're part of a startup that's successful and you get acquired. And there's always this part of you that goes through a little death because the scrappy team that you were such a key part of is now all of a sudden not. And so even though it's good news, you still have to go through all that profound change. And again, I mean, I think all the data will show that it's very important how leadership communicates, but it's most important that the management level and the team level can be present and be trained in how to communicate for uncertain times. Like I feel like the management skill of this era is knowing how to communicate with your team and create a holding space, often remotely, in all this uncertainty. And that's really hard. And there are some people I think who are intuitive communicators, like they're intuitively empathetic to others and understand how to communicate in a supportive and open way. There are some people for whom that's natural. And I think much more often the case is there are people that we observe do it well. And it's mm -hmm. because they've received training. Yeah. And it's because they've screwed it up in the past and gotten better. And so what do we do in situations where we are trying to be good communicators and we screw it up? What's the recipe for disaster recovery? Because I think if I have listeners who've never messed it up, I would like a call because I would like to learn. Seriously, tell us. Right? So how do you fix it? I mean, first of all, you, you you say I screwed up. I mean, that's the hardest thing, right? The hope is that you've built enough trust with your team that you're able to screw up, right? I mean, this is why psychological safety is such a big deal. If you've built a team where everyone is either scared of you or feels like they can't screw up, you know, then the stakes are very high when you do, which you inevitably will because you're human. And so it's sort of about everyday communication and practicing little mistakes all the time so that when a bigger mistake in communication happens, it's not such a big deal. One of, one of the skills that is the hardest, and I struggle with this with my kids actually, is how when I don't know an answer, how am I a leader? Look, coronavirus may come back and your school may close again. I don't know the answer to that. But here's, here's what I can tell you and here's how I can make you feel safe. I mean, part of that is what we have to do as managers and leaders even when we don't know the answer. And I think that that requires what Amy Cuddy and, and her team so famously studied as this mix of vulnerability and competence, right? And this is, this is actually sort of the magical combination for being a good leader is that you need to be seen as competent, as strong enough to get done what you need to get done in a good way, to fight for your team but you need to be seen as vulnerable enough to be present with your team when things are really scary and to be seen as human. And it's this mixture of vulnerability and strength that when you look at the very best leaders and the people that we trust the most, I'll never forget when I had the Harvard Business School historian Nancy Kane on my show, and she studies leaders in times of crisis. And she would talk about, you know, 
Ernest Shackleton, who famously led a team of men into the Arctic and they were stuck in the ice for two and a half years and they were eating you know, penguins and it was horrible. And he had no idea if anyone was coming to rescue him. He was full of self-doubt, but he had to show up and keep those men alive every day. And that alchemy, I mean, I feel like that's, that's your life's work. I love that. Now I know we're coming up on the end of time here. If people want to learn more about the work that you do, learn more about the anxious achiever, how should they go and do that? Um, they should follow me on LinkedIn because I'm most active there. And if you send me a message, I will definitely get back to you. So find me on LinkedIn, listen to the anxious achiever, wherever you get your podcasts. I have a book coming out April 11th, the anxious achiever. My, my goal in life is to be helpful. I want to be helpful to people. And it is an extremely helpful book. If you are a leader at any level who manages personal or chronic anxiety, it will be out April 11th from Harvard Business Review Press. Very exciting. Well, we will absolutely include those links in the show notes and really looking forward to the book. I really appreciate your time and your perspective here. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. Now, if any of our listeners would like to bring these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, you can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to learn more. Thank you so much, Maura. Thanks, Alyssa.